Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Up from the grave he arose, and words similar, such as we've sung this morning, are being heralded all over the world today in celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we must understand today that the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of all Christianity. If someone could prove that Jesus did not bodily resurrect from the grave, then we have the death of Christianity. It's been a goal of lost humanity for centuries to try to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there are those still today that choose to follow that endless dead-end street. But my question to you this morning is, do you believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Now, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, obviously you cannot claim to be a Christian because we have no resurrected Christ. We have no ascension, we have no glorification, and there is no means to our salvation. You must believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the keystone of our Christianity. The Battle of Waterloo, Napoleon said that a certain stone house was the key to the whole battle that if he could take that house, victory could be his. So he hurled all of his forces against that stone house. But the men were driven back every single time. Had he been able to take that house, then it would have been a French victory and not one of others of of the foes that he fought that day. So today the enemies of Christ are doing the same thing. They're taking their stand against the central truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, knowing that if they can disprove that, they will have secured a victory for all the forces of hell. So in our message today, message today, we're going to come into a court session. We're going to walk into a court session with the great lawyer, the Apostle Paul. Did Christ resurrect from the dead? And the Apostle Paul is going to call forth eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in order to set, set, lay it to rest that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. It's upon their testimony in 1 Corinthians 15 that the proof lies in our message. Look in verse 1 now of chapter 15. It's been 25 years now since the resurrection of Christ when Paul writes these words. One of his key arguments, as I've already said, are the witnesses, not only the witnesses that he brings forth, but witnesses of the resurrection that are still living, still living in the day that he wrote this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, 
the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received and which you also stand, by which you also are saved if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles who am fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. Now, as we walk into this court session, you know, the greatest lawyer in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul in the sense that the book of Romans was used for years in our law schools to teach lawyers how to build a case. If anybody knows how to go about proving something biblically and scripturally, Paul knows how to do it. And I want us to enter into the arena that we are going to enter into today and watch how he goes about proving the resurrection of Christ. First of all, we have to look at the problem of the resurrection that Paul was having to address. The very fact that Paul spent so much time trying to prove the resurrection shows that the Corinthians, the believers there, supposed believers, were somehow doubting the resurrection. He says in verse 12, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now you, you remember, if you've been with us in the study of Corinthians, we've been in this study for two years and four months. We kind of understand the church. Uh, they're a sick bunch. They love the wisdom of the world. They love to intellectualize things. They love to try to figure it out for themselves. And evidently, these fleshly-minded Corinthians had made up their little fleshly minds that the resurrection of the, from the dead was impossible. Why? Because they couldn't figure out how it could be done. Uh, how many of you today still have this same struggle? Well, Wayne, I think I believe it, but I don't understand how it could be done. Have you ever made that statement? Would you raise your hand if you've ever thought that statement? Anybody in here be honest enough to raise your hand? Yeah, several of us have, and most of us just won't admit it. You see, because we can't understand it, we wonder if we're doubting it. And that's exactly what was going on in Corinth. They began to doubt the resurrection of the dead, mainly because they couldn't mentally comprehend how that could ever take place. Because we cannot understand how something happens, though, we should not discount it necessarily as being false. Because if we do, then we allow our human logic to win once again. That's really the problem that Paul's dealing with here. They can't figure it out, so therefore they don't believe it. It's the epitome of ignorance when one denies known facts and reliable observations just to hold on to his own lack of understanding of how something happened. Now Paul is going to produce credible eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection. And it's interesting to note here, these are mostly men, some men and women. But did you realize in the day that the scriptures were written that a woman's testimony was not allowed in court? They did not believe that a woman's testimony could be reliable. And isn't it interesting, before we even get into the witnesses that Paul's going to produce here, that the first, two, first people that witnessed the resurrection of Christ, the empty tomb, were women. 
Mary Magdalene and several other women. Do you realize that if this was a farce and somebody was trying to prove this in another way, that they would have never ever recorded that there were women present when they went to the tomb? Because in their culture, you don't ever credit a woman's testimony. However, the scriptures records it was the women who were there first that saw that the tomb was empty. But Paul is going to produce some credible witnesses here that's going to prove his resurrection. He does not attempt to prove their reliability or the sufficiency of the actual witnesses. He doesn't attempt to do that. His purpose is to dispel the idea that Christ could not have risen because we cannot possibly figure it out. Eyewitnesses discount that whole theory. You see, when you begin to try to figure out biblical truths, many, many times you fall into a deep hole. That's when logic takes over. This is what's killed us, folks, in a lot of truths. For instance, try election and the responsibility of man and try to logically figure that out. Try to figure out how it's man's responsibility to respond to Christ, and yet Christ said, no man can come to me except the Father drawing. You try to figure that out. And men have done it, and they're splitting churches all over the country because they think they've come up with the answer. And the Apostle Paul himself said, it's a mystery. He didn't understand it. Why do we think we have to understand it? Not only that, try to figure out the sovereignty of God and why God tells us to pray. If God's going to do it anyway, then why do we pray? You see, there's a lot of enigmas in Scripture. There's a lot of mysteries in Scripture. Try to figure out the virgin birth. You see, they had fallen into a trap in Corinth. And they said, since I can't figure out how he did it, then he must not have done it. And he began to doubt the resurrection. It's amazing how we try to figure everything out. My grandmother, never till the day she died, believed we landed on the moon. She never would. She said that was a setup that was done in a studio somewhere. But my same grandmother would sit on Thursday nights and watch professional wrestling. <laughs> and she thought that was real. <laughs> Welcome to Corinth. Welcome to Corinth. It's amazing how when you don't somehow can comprehend something, you think that it has not taken place. Well, for us to make the assumption that the resurrection of Christ is impossible, based on our own inability to understand it, is a terrible, terrible mistake. Matter of fact, a miracle such as the resurrection is going to have to be put in the class of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 12. He says, now I know in part. That's all we know. All we know is that it happened. We'll never mentally ascend to where we can fully understand it. We believe it because it is written. And we believe it because there were witnesses. We believe it because of the word of God. God can at any time alter the natural in order to reveal himself to man. He's done it many times. He has many times in his word done that. But Paul goes about showing that the resurrection of Christ happened. It happened. There was authoritative evidence. It was attested to by witnesses whose character was unquestionable. You see, we've got to get over this logic syndrome that has so infiltrated Christianity. If I can't figure it out, then it must not be real. Jesus was raised by the power of God, and that power of God we can experience but we'll never fully grasp or understand. Matter of fact, turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. Let's just make sure we've got some of this under our belt before we get into the witnesses that Paul's going to bring forth. Ephesians chapter 1. Now, if you, if you think the resurrection of Christ brings you trouble, let me throw another curve at you. Not only did he resurrect, he resurrected himself. Now, that's going to be exciting for you to understand. If you think you can understand any of it, I'm just going to complicate it even more. Ephesians 1, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, 
What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the, great, the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Now watch. Which he brought about in Christ. The implication here is God the Father. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at, at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now the implication is the Father raised him from the dead. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul speaks of God the Father who raised Christ from the dead. But, wait a minute. We also know that Jesus Christ equated his power with the power of the Father. In John chapter 2 and verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple and in three days, what? I will raise it up. And in verse 21, Paul, John goes on to clarify what he's talking about. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Look at John 10 and verse 17. John 10, verse 17. These are critical verses. And, and when you start looking at it, you're thinking, not only can I not understand the resurrection, I can't understand how the one dying on the cross is the one who resurrected himself. That goes far beyond my capacity to comprehend. It says in verse 17 of John chapter 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life and, or that rather, I, I, may take it again. Verse 18, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. He didn't say my father is gonna take it up again. He says I will take it up again. Technically, technically, Jesus raised himself from the dead. As a matter of fact, technically, if you wanna boggle your mind a little bit, Jesus dismissed his own human spirit when he was on the cross. Because he's God. He's the God man. You see, we're not going to comprehend all of this. And the further you go, the deeper it gets. It's like getting into a well that has no bottom to it. And you say, help me, help me. And God says, I'll help you. Just believe it. Stop trying to figure it out. John 2, 22, here's what the disciples did. When therefore he was raised from the dead, they saw it. His disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. All it took for them was to see him, and when they saw him, they said it's exactly what he said he was gonna do, and they believed the scripture. Don't try to figure it out. You'll never figure it out. And when you find yourself questioning it because you can't figure it out, back off and say, listen, God, I give that to you because you're, you're bigger than my brain. I'm just gonna bow before you and Stand, stand on what your word has to say in my life. The resurrection was a demonstration of the power of God. You can experience that power, but you'll never comprehend it. Therefore, just believe it and go on. So the problem that was going on in Corinth was they couldn't figure it out, so they doubted it. But since I can't figure out how it happened, it must not have happened. And Paul is addressing these fleshly-minded believers. Well, secondly, he gives the proof of the resurrection. He was seen. He was seen. Christ after his death on the cross was seen by credible witnesses. Now you know from Deuteronomy, if you've ever studied the Old Testament, 17 and verse 6, 
on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who, who is to die shall be put to death. He, he shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. In other words, it only took two witnesses or three to cause a man to be sentenced to death. Two witnesses, three witnesses confirmed the truth. Now, Paul's not going to bring one or two. <laughs> Paul's going to bring a whole host of them that were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ. The master lawyer calls them forth. Look at verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 15. He begins with Cephas. He says, and that he appeared to Cephas. Cephas, of course, is Simon Peter. You say, why do they call him Cephas? Well, that's his Aramaic name. Matter of fact, it means rock or stone, just like his Greek name meant. What a witness. What a story we have in the, in the story about Simon Peter on resurrection morning. Uh, none of his disciples could have been sadder than Peter on resurrection morning. He's the one who said, if others desert you, Lord, I won't. He not only deserted him, but he denied him three times in the presence of witnesses. Luke records the sad event that took place right after he denied him three times at a fire. People said, weren't you with him? I never knew him. And one gospel account says he cursed. He said, I never knew the man. This is how weak-willed Peter was. And on resurrection morning, he couldn't have been any sadder. And Luke says in Luke chapter 22 and verse 61, they brought Jesus out of the house of the high priest and Peter had been outside following along. And when he walked by Peter, look what happened, verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And verse 62 says, he went out and he wept bitterly. Listen, here's a man who's dejected. Here's a man who's defeated. He's denied his very Lord and watched him go to the cross and watched him die on that cross. How beautiful is the story on Resurrection Sunday that Jesus would choose Peter <laughs> to go to as one of the first ones that he revealed himself to. The angel made the announcement in Luke 24, 34 saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the command that came out of Mark, he says, but go tell his disciples and Peter, tell Peter, make sure you tell Peter. He is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he said to you. It was at Pentecost that we see Simon Peter later on, 50 days down the road after the resurrection. We see Simon Peter then being filled with the Spirit of God when the new covenant was inaugurated and God the Spirit came to live in man, not to just be with him or upon him, but to live in him. That was the beginning of that new covenant that all of us are in today. It was Peter then that we see preaching unashamedly. He said, you men tell us not to preach. I can't help but tell you the things that I've seen and I've heard. The resurrected Lord Jesus Christ had so transformed this man from a weakling that denied him to a man who would stand in the presence of his accusers and preach Christ unashamedly. It was Peter who later became a martyr for the faith. He was put to death under the wicked rule of Nero. And when he wrote 1 and 2 Peter, he says, I know that my time of departure has come. I know that I'm about to be crucified. Tradition tells us he was hung upside down because they wanted to crucify him. And he says, no way. I will never be hung up right side up like my master. Hang me upside down. Now let me ask you a question. Why would God have Paul bring Cephas forward first? Well, he was the unsung leader of all the disciples. Matter of fact, his name was in Corinthians. It says some of you are Paul, some of you are of Apollos, some of you are of Cephas. Cephas was a name that was a household name in Christianity at that time. And here is a man who would be willing to die for the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think a man would go and be crucified upside down for a hoax? And so the apostle Paul brings him forth and said, I got a witness for you, buddy. 
And his credibility is his life. He was a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He appeared to Cephas. Well, so much for the first witness. He moves immediately from one person now to a group, to the 12 disciples. It says in verse 15, 5, or chapter 15, verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, then, he says, to the 12. Now, the word appeared is the word apthi. It means he chose to appear. He chose to appear. In other words, God didn't randomly pick these people. This was, this was of the, according to a divine plan. Why did he pick Cephas? And then why did Paul put it this way? Then he appeared, he says, to the 12. The word 12 there is synonymous for the disciples because what Paul is doing is referring to an account found in John 20, 19 through 20, and in Luke 24, 36 through 43. And in both of these accounts, there are two people missing. There are not 12 there. Judas has hanged himself, and Thomas was not there. So why would he say 12 in, in, in verse, why would he say that? Why would he say 12 when there were only 10? Because the term the 12 was known as a term referring to the disciples, no matter how many you're, you're talking about at that particular point. In fact, another term also became known as a term designating the disciples, and that was the term the 11. So we have the 12, we have the 11. A case in point, Luke 24, 33 says, And they arose that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them. <laughs> and he's referring to the disciples. There were many people there. But he singles out the disciples by calling them the 11. The most reliable witnesses that you could possibly call forth in a, in a trial would be Simon Peter and it would be the 12 disciples, those who walked along with the Lord Jesus Christ. Almost every one of them to a man died a horrible, violent death as a result of being surrendered to the one they said they believed in. So Paul says, you want to doubt the resurrection? Do you want to doubt that it happened? Let's come here, Peter. Come here, disciples. They're your witnesses. They're your witnesses. Well, Paul calls them first. But if that's not enough, in verse 6, after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Now, what about 500 in one shot? Now, Paul strengthens the case from 1 to 12 to 500. The appearance was most probably at Galilee. And this is just an assumption. But Matthew tells us that after Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to Mary, Magdalene, and, and, and the other Mary, and he told them in, in chapter 28 of Matthew, verse 10, Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take the word, or take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. Now, some people say that's just the disciples. Well, if it was, that could have taken place in Judea, could have taken place in Jerusalem and Capernaum. But if you wanted a large group of people not to attract a lot of attention, you go to Galilee. And probably that's what he was saying. Can you imagine on that appointed day, people leaving their villages, scurrying out, people coming out of their little townships because the word had said, go to Galilee, go to Galilee. He's going to appear to us. He's going to appear to us. And the one who believed, they went. And 500 showed up. And Jesus appeared to all 500 at one time. Now that little phrase, at one time, is a wonderful translation. It's exactly what Paul intended to say. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Now, if it was been one at a time, it would have been a little harder to prove. But you put 500 people in a group at one shot, and you bring the Lord Jesus in front of them, it's hard to deceive 500 at one time. 500 people witnessed the resurrected Christ at the same time. It's almost as if Paul is saying when he says, most of whom remain until now. 
It's almost as if in his argument in his court cases, all right, you don't believe me? Then you go talk to them. They're still living. Go talk to them. Isn't that incredible? It says they have remained until now. And the word has the idea. God had them remain until then as, as witnesses, as proof that they, they saw the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. When I was studying this, I came across a thought. If someone took their testimony one at a time for six minutes, took a death position, they won six minutes a person, six minutes a person, you would have 50 solid hours of eyewitness account that they saw the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 7, Paul moves on. He's gone from Peter, Cephas, the unsung leader. He's gone to the 12. Now he's gone to 500, possibly over in Galilee. Then in verse 7, he brings an even greater witness. He says, then he appeared to James. Now I want to tell you something, folks. Who would be better to qualify to, to attest that they've seen the resurrected Christ than his own half-brother. This is James' half-brother. Why do I call him a half-brother? Because Jesus did not have an earthly father. So these were children born later on. But this was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. When a member of a family is killed, the state police or the local police will call some other member of the family to do what? Come down and identify the body. So now he brings forth James. And I think this is so significant because back in, in the book of John, chapter 7 and verse 5, his brothers didn't believe in him. His brothers didn't believe him. It's incredible. They didn't believe who he was. Matter of fact, they tried to get him to go out and do some miracles so they could see for themselves if he really was who he said he was. But he kept saying, the time is not yet for me to go forth. My time with my father has not come for me to be glorified. What a moment when the resurrected Christ, now this is, not, this is after the cross, appeared to his disbelieving half-brother, James. Does it change his life? Anything happened to him? Oh, I might, you might say that. As a matter of fact, the next time you see him, he's the elder of the church of Jerusalem. He's the key man in Jerusalem of the Christian church from that point on. Something radically changed his life. And it wasn't before the cross. It was after the cross that he was changed. And it was when he saw the revealed Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on. He's gone from one, Cephas. He's gone to the 12. He's gone to the 500. All right, if that's not good enough, let's go to the family member. A family member identified him. He saw him. He appeared to him. And then he says to all the apostles. Now, that's an enigma to me. I haven't, I haven't fully grasped why. He, he's obviously referring to the same group as he talked about in the 12. Why does he call them disciples in verse 5 and apostles in verse 7? Unless he's trying to show that after the cross, after the resurrection, the change that came in them. A disciple is a learner. An apostle is one sent forth to tell what he's learned. And it could be that because they have so radically changed, he brings them up again. Because the people that he's writing to at that point would know who the apostles were. That's who gave us the New Testament. That's who gave us our doctrine. Well, it's interesting that after mentioning the apostles, Paul now stands to give his own account of seeing Christ resurrected. Verse 8. And last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he said, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now I want to tell you something. If you've ever studied anything from, New, from Scripture, and if you're a skeptic here today, and if you're hearing my voice, and you have any kind of disbelief in the resurrection of Christ, you've got to come and start looking at the character of the men that are mentioned here. The Apostle Paul was the most intelligent man in the New Testament other than Christ himself. He was schooled under Gamaliel, the greatest teacher of the law that lived during that day. He knew the law, I mean, from A to Z. 
and he was a man beautifully intelligent. He stood on Mars Hill and took on the philosophers of all of Greece and he could argue with them until, until the sun went down. He could stand his own. Now, the Apostle Paul, a great, intelligent, strong, sane, spiritual man, was not about to rest his faith on a hoax. And he says, if you don't believe them, he appeared to me. Now, I want to tell you something, folks. The radical change that God brought in his life after appearing to him on the Damascus Road is the New Testament that we study all the time. He was a Jew, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians. He stood there when Stephen was stoned, a believer, and, and, and laughed and watched as Stephen died. And God stopped him. And he became the greatest preacher we can ever find in the New Testament, a preacher of grace, a man who came out of law and a man who was overwhelmed by the message of grace. It was no fluke that induced him to forsake the religion of his fathers, to forsake all his hopes among his own people, to become a persecuted follower of the despised Nazarene, to undergo sufferings and labors for Christ, and then without a penny to his name, because he came out of a rich family, without a penny to his name, to be martyred for the faith. You've got to look at the character of these people that Paul brings up about the, the evidence of the, and the witnesses of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. There's no small evidence of the resurrection of Christ that the apostle Paul said, I saw it and he changed my life. So the proof of the resurrection, the witnesses that he brings forth, the witnesses that by them very, very, understanding in scripture have the credibility there. The 500, we don't know who they were by name, but we know that when you put 500 people together, it's hard to deceive 500 at one shot. Cephas, we know who he was, Simon Peter. We know the 12. We know James, his brother. We, we understand the apostles and we understand Paul. These are men of great integrity. And he says, now listen, you come forth, come forth. Doubters, come forth. Here are your witnesses to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. The problem is you don't believe it could have happened because you can't understand it. You just won't go on and believe it. Let us help you believe it. We saw it. We saw it. But then finally the power of the resurrected Christ. Paul was living proof of what the resurrected Christ can do in a person's life. Had he not resurrected, he did not have this power. But since he did resurrect, he vindicates who he is and now has that power in us. He says in verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles who am not fitted to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. Now, I'll tell you what, the apostle Paul stands as a humbled man. He remembers now what he used to be. And now he's giving testimony to what the resurrected power of Christ has done in his life. You know what? This is where I want to turn the message this morning because I know we're on a short time run and there's a, there's a short runway that we're on today. I know that. But I want to turn it back to you this morning. Do you believe in the resurrected power of the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, yes, Brother Wayne, I do. I, I came forward years ago and I received him into my life. Well, if you did, let me ask you this, this question. Are you experiencing his resurrected power in your life this morning? That's where I've got to leave the message. That's the proof of his resurrection. It's all in Scripture. The proof is there. The matter is, do you believe it? And if you have believed it and do believe it, are you experiencing it day by day? What is resurrection? Resurrection implies death. 
being able to take something that's dead and bring it back to life, bring life out of it. Do you realize that's what God wants to do in your heart and my heart today as a believer? He wants to reach into the deadness of our inability and bring forth the power of his resurrection to enable us to be everything he's commanded us to be. Now you've got to understand what we're saying here. Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 10, I want to experience him. I want to know for myself the power of his resurrection. I thought he already knew it. He did. But he continues to want to know it. It's something you live in every day of your life. This is what transformed Paul. This is what transforms us every day that we live. Has your life been changed by that indwelling power this morning? You say, well, Brother Wayne, you don't understand of the things that I've done wrong. Well, I, well, I don't have to understand. You don't know what I did wrong. But thank God his arm is not too short to reach to wherever we are. That's his grace. And his power, his resurrection power can bring forth life out of the deadness of any situation. And once you've received him, God can transform your family this morning. God can transform your, your life, everything around you, if you'll just surrender yourself to him and allow his resurrection power to work in and through you. Maybe you are not a believer this morning, but maybe you are. Maybe you are. I was down in Mississippi doing a meeting a few weeks ago. Sometimes I, don't, I forget to tell you where I'm headed. And just got back from Germany, which I went from Jackson, Mississippi, to Germany. Diana drove back home. But after the week was over, a man came forward, and there were, there were just lines of people, and it was so precious. We had six to 700 people a night, 200 at every noon session. I've not been in a meeting like that in a long time. And as I stood there, people were coming by, and this one man was just shaking, visibly shaking, and a tears just streaming down his face. And he came up, and he put his arms around me and just buried his, his head into my chest, and he just wept, and he said, Sir, you don't understand how you've helped me this week. I didn't have a clue what he was coming from. He said, I never fully grasped the fact that I can't be different in my own power, but God can transform me. His little wife was standing right behind him. And as he walked on, he couldn't say anything more. He was crying. And the little wife came up. She said, I have got to write you. You will not know for eternity what God did in my husband's life this week. He was a Christian. He said he was a Christian. But this week, he got connected to the resurrected power of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll tell you something. Once you start living in that resurrected power, you'll never have to worry anymore do you believe that Christ resurrected. <laughs> because only God can do that in your heart and in my heart. That's the bottom line. Do you believe it this morning? Have, have you believed it? Are you believing it? Are you allowing the resurrected Christ who ascended was glorified and now sends his spirit to live in us to help us daily now continue to experience that resurrected power in our life? Take a situation in your life and completely turn it around. Or if he doesn't turn it around, turn you inside out in the midst of it. That's the power God has. Up from the grave, he arose. I tell you what, when I came over here this morning, I did not have an emotion in my body that wanted to preach. <laughs> Aren't you glad our faith does not rest upon emotion? Aren't you glad? I did not have any feelings. I walked in here, I love to see everybody, but I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know whether I got up on the wrong side of the bed. I don't know whether I didn't sleep long enough. I don't know what went on. No feelings at all, just nothing. It's amazing to me, it's amazing to me to hear the choir sing and praise and, and begin to, to sense that there is something here going on today. But then to get into the word, which were nothing more than words on a paper. And God, begin to make them come alive to you, even as you're sharing them.
Do I believe in the resurrected power of Christ? Are you kidding me? Do I believe he resurrected? Son, if I didn't, if I didn't, I'd be a madman in an institution somewhere rolling marbles down the sixth floor. Yes, sir, I believe it. And I thank God that what I'm not, what I'm not, his, his resurrection power in me can transform that fast if I'm willing just to bow before him and surrender to him. He makes me what I could never be in my own power. Yes, I believe Christ resurrected. And I believe in the resurrected power he now has in believers. The question is, however, do you? For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 